While the Monocle Weekly takes a temporary break, we're keeping up with top movers and shakers from across the arts and culture. Trevor Paglin is an American artist whose work explores the complicated role surveillance and data collection plays in our lives. His latest exhibition, Bloom, at London's Pace Gallery, uses a digital surveillance platform called Octopus to allow the curious to visit and monitor visitors online. It follows his last London show, From Apple to Anomaly, held at the Barbican's Curve Space, for which I spoke to him on the Monocle Weekly. Do check back episodes to find that interview. I began by asking Trevor how he's moved on since that Barbican exhibition last year. A lot has happened in the year since that Barbican installation. The world has has changed quite a bit. So the exhibition at Pace is called Bloom. There is a lot of technology in there. There is a lot of AI. These are still concerns of mine. But I guess what has happened in the interim and, and what is one of the things that I'm trying to work out, I guess, for myself with the with the exhibition and the body of work is, of course, on one hand, a global pandemic <laughs> that has been, you know, at least in the American context and, you know, venture to say in the British context as well, just been handled so poorly and just laid bare such, on one hand, a lack of leadership, on the other hand, a sort of kind of extreme inequalities, the kind of senseless death that that has added up to and kind of going in in parallel to that and and not unrelated to that is a kind of growing nationalism, growing fascism, really, quite honestly. And so this exhibition was made under those circumstances, was made under conditions where we were all huddled in apartments, afraid to go outside, you know, in my case, in New York, anywhere, there's so much death that, you know, you couldn't be be buried. And so they've had refrigeration trucks down the block from me where they were just putting bodies in there. And so this is a show that really is, for me, on one hand, it's about mourning and it's about fragility. And it is, I guess that's the sentiment that it comes out of. And if you had told me five years ago that I'd be doing an exhibition that had pictures of flowers at the centerpiece of it. I would have told you that you were out of your mind. But I guess in, in that context, you go back to these kinds of images, these kinds of allegorical images that have been a part of art history and human history and a part of the ways in which we've made sense of things like life and things like death and things like fragility and things like impermanence. You really go back to your ancestors in a way. You look at the the artists before you and how they dealt with similar kinds of issues. Now, we're not living in the same, we're not living in the 15th century. We're not living in the Baroque era. Nonetheless, these symbols and these kinds of images can be powerful allegories. But we're also, part of what characterizes this particular moment in history is that as a result of this pandemic, our forms of sociability have been really reduced to 
you know, what are, you know, essentially pretty awkward interactions on digital platforms. And we know that these platforms are not neutral, right? We know that these are platforms that are trying to harvest as much data about it as possible at minimum, but they're increasingly being built with tools baked into them that try to measure our attention, that try to measure our affective responses to things that are using artificial intelligence to try to evaluate us and try to extract data from us. And, and you're seeing this very clearly starting to happen now with schools, right? For example, but this is happening in workplace, et cetera, et cetera. So this combination of factors coming together, I guess, for me are some of the things that animate the exhibition. I was interested in that social distancing, the, the mediation through digital platforms that you were talking about there. I do want to come on to those, the, the kind of the biases of, of those platforms and the way that you maybe reflect on them in a moment. But I was wondering, you know, I've been glued to Octopus, which is the digital platform that allows you to experience the exhibition at Pace Gallery through the website without going to see it. It's a kind of interface of cameras but then it also accesses if you permit it your own webcam on your device so that your face one's face the audience member's face appears in the gallery on the internet you know people talk on message boards about they sort of differentiate don't they between lurkers and sort of posters between people who participate in these online communities and people who are just there to watch and I wondered what your thoughts were on this kind of techno voyeurism, whether it's exacerbating our desire to peep or if, in fact, it's kind of not that straightforward. You know, I thought about why anyone would turn on the camera on their laptop so that they'd appear in the gallery. But then I started wondering why anyone would post a picture of themselves on social media, which people do compulsively. And then I turned the camera on and I felt quite awkward and strange. <laughs> yeah, so the the octopus is, you know, another layer of trying to deal with, again, the, these forms of like digital interactions on media platforms, but also what we can think about is like the geography, really, of the virus, you know, in the sense of like things have become much more local, all relationship to spaces has become much more quirky, I guess, would be would be the word. In, in other words, we, we have very different and uneasy relationships to different kinds of spaces. So what the octopus is, is a series of cameras that are installed in the exhibition. It also utilizes the gallery's own surveillance camera system. So it allows you as a user to go to a website and you can basically look at the exhibition through the eyes of all these different cameras that are installed in there. You can also see on the website pre-recorded videos that are showing some of the background documents or research documents that were going into the images, some of the images that I was looking at in terms of putting this body of work together. And as you mentioned, the other thing that you can do is you can allow it to access your webcam and it will broadcast your image onto one of several monitors that are in the space. So when somebody, if somebody's in the space in person looking around, they might see, you know, faces popping up on monitors on the walls around them. And those are people looking at the show online. For me, it was really, on one hand, an experiment, you know, with the architecture. It was an experiment that's trying to think about the fact that we're all living in these kind of hybrid, embodied, hybrid, you know, remote 
spaces and trying to think about can you design an exhibition that understands that that is the condition that we're in from the get-go right and so doesn't try to you know on one hand we're not throwing out the old model of going into a gallery and seeing work on walls but at the same time we need to recognize the fact that people are not traveling in the same way people aren't going to exhibitions in the same way we are seeing artwork through much more like different kinds of mediated platforms and digital platforms so what if you just take that seriously as part of how you put the exhibition together in the first place in terms of why people would use it i i think it's interesting i was playing with a lot yesterday and like it was sort of monitoring it. And I could see people that I know coming into the gallery and then I could turn on my camera and get on there and like wave to them, you know, in the monitors, for example. Very late last night after hours, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine in the US and we said, hey, well, let's just talk to each other with octopus monitors on, you know, in the space. So we had a conversation where we were looking at each other on the monitors in the gallery, but talking to each other on the phone. And so that does create a weird sense of embodiment it is a very different experience than a Zoom call, for example. On the same time, it does, it of course, refers to those kinds of platforms that we're, that we're using. Uh, that's a long-winded answer, I'm sorry, but th that's, I guess that's the, um, the range of things that are going into it in terms of my own thinking. You also have this sculpture of a head at the heart of the exhibition, which we're told isn't uh, the head of anyone living, but is rather a model based on the kind of median measurements, the classifications taken of a human head. And it illustrates something which I think was very much under the microscope from Apple to Anomaly as well, and that recurs in your work, which is the kind of politics of classification, the fact that there is no neutrality in technology, no matter how it might like to present itself as such. I've kind of was wondering how you think that these complex systems of classification that have come to shape the technology we use, but also the way that our societies are operated, value systems, principles, as we're obviously coming up to the elections in the US. Mm. A lot was made last time around, certainly around the Brexit vote as well, of this phenomenon of the social media bubble. It was kind of the first time maybe people recognised the political power of of the atomizing force of social media the way that kind of galvanized a sort of polarization of tribalism and the fact that what underpins it is this same complicated system of classification this need to subdivide and to group people according to characteristics traits or interests all of which kind of as you say turns people into well turns their attention into kind of commodities I wondered if these associated issues, these societal issues with which we're grappling today, are a product of the abuse of these classification systems, or if rather they're a kind of inevitability of the logic of classification. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question and a really good way of framing it in terms of thinking about forms of classification being a two-way street or being kind of, you know, for at the risk of throwing a difficult word out there, a dialectical relationship. In other words, classifications are built into technical systems. Those classification systems then go out in the world and classify people. And the ways in which people are classified does have very real consequences. On one hand, it can have consequences in terms of how you get a job or how your performance is measured on an online platform. 
or what kinds of YouTube videos are being shown at you. And of course, that those classifications then can reinforce or foster or promote certain worldviews, ways of being, certain kind of forms of identity making. And that can obviously lead to a kind of factionalization. I, I think we've seen that very clearly and probably that's been most studied in terms of uh, YouTube and Facebook in particular. So is that an abuse of classification? Well, I always frame those questions in terms of whose power is being amplified and who is benefiting from a particular system and at whose expense is that coming. So I think it's quite easy to see how those forms of really micro-targeting, micro-data collection can be extremely profitable to the companies that are able to do that, right? And so is that an abuse of classification? Well, I mean, you can't think about classification as being separate from the kind of economic and political interests of those people or companies who are doing the classifying, right? And so I think we just look at how is power being reallocated through technical systems. And I think you can see lots of power being allocated towards policing you know, in terms of facial recognition using that sort of technology. You're seeing power being allocated in the hands of corporations, particularly when people are working remotely, corporations that are building platforms to be able to evaluate people remotely and kind of autonomously. And then, of course, in, in terms of other companies that are able to create content, do micro-targeting, and engage that kind of activity. Now, what is not ironic, but we can say that there, there is a huge countervailing force to this as well, which is that while this has been a period in time where we have seen very intense consolidations of power, and we have seen the these forms of classification built into technical systems that are very centralized. We've also seen huge protests that are calling for the redefinition of the meaning of things, right? So protests calling for, let's redefine what we mean by public safety. Let's redefine what we mean by policing. And so there is, again, in the U.S. context at least, there is a widespread questioning of the ways in which we've classified things in the past and whether we want to imagine reclassifying them because there's an understanding that those classifications have consequences and that there's a politics to them. Thinking about the way that Octopus offers one a rather rare opportunity to surveil rather than just to be surveilled, is this idea that, you know, in, in sort of 2016, in the middle of the, well, the teenies, I suppose, there was this sort of warning, maybe kind of, quasi-techno-utopian slash dystopian idea that maybe the singularity was coming, maybe artificial intelligence was about to become this kind of existential threat to humanity. And I think that in recent years, it's become a little clearer that actually that kind of intelligence, that kind of creativity, that kind of depth of understanding isn't so easily taught to machines as incredibly complicated and layered computing power and problem solving is, and that rather than pervert or enslave humanity artificial intelligences might be used quite effectively to augment human workers that there's not going to be some great overthrow 
of the worker, but rather a gradual phasing out as a person plus a computer program is able to do the work of millions of people. I wondered, though, you know, thinking about this surveillance, thinking about the categorization, you mentioned it there, and whose interest is this done, whether our culture has yet metabolized the truth of this recursive loop where we're surveilled because we have been, where these, where unless emerging social or civil rights movements like Black Lives Matter in the States comes forward and really strongly denounces these biases which have led to this inequality or to this kind of subjugation, that unless there's really, I mean, it's a very disruptive, huge social movement, that without that, there's really no hope of kind of breaking out of this cycle. And I wonder whether you think that that's kind of widely understood across politics and across art, or if we still haven't quite caught up with how trapped in this loop of technology and increasingly outdated values we are and how coercive that is. So first of all, to speak to your provocation about the singularity in this artificial general intelligence or whatever they call it, my friend, the artist, he does really has what I think is one of my favorite things that anybody said about this. She says, you know, the singularity already happened. It's called neoliberalism, right? <laughs> so in the, in, the, in the sense that there is this greater, you know, form of logic that we have allowed to structure societies that has goals and interests that are profoundly anti-human in many ways, and yet we are still all subjected to it, right? whether we want to be or not. And I do think that that leads into your question about awareness of the pervasiveness of what we might call predatory forms of technology, forms of technology that are able to monitor and extract value from the you know increasingly more and more intimate parts of our lives, whether that is technologies that know what is going on in our minds from our Google searches or that are quite literally monitoring our body functions, you know, by, you know, in the form of you know, fitness trackers and that sort of thing. I do think that there's increasing awareness that this comes at an enormous cost, both literally as well as figuratively. It's quite literally in the sense that we are moving very quickly towards a society in which all of your actions literally cost you something. And this is several of the pieces in the show actually refer to this. There's one piece that's made out of a data set for AI that is made up thousands and thousands of pictures of people driving cars. And it's looking at their driving and whether or not they're paying attention to the road or whether they're looking at a cell phone or whether they're holding a drink, or what have you. So it's this massive, massive grid of these pictures. And what those pictures are intended to do is to teach an AI whether or not somebody is distracted while they're driving. And those are, it's an AI that insurance companies are trying to build so that you would install one of their cameras in your car and would continually monitor your driving and your insurance rates would fluctuate based on whether their AI thought that you were paying attention or not. <laughs> you know? So this is indicative of where the industry in general is going. And so that, that's an example of what I mean by this financialization of these very microscopic parts of our everyday lives. 
Now, of course, there's a figurative cost to this as well, which has to do with what kind of society does that add up to when we're surrounded by systems that demand of us to behave in certain kinds of ways at the expense of others. There's a sense in London, at least, that between surveillance, both surveillance capitalism of the sort that you explore and the surveillance of increasingly privatised public space, that we're kind of only recognising these issues as it becomes too late. Yeah, I, I think that we need to reframe the ways that we think about public space and re rethink the ways that we think about what privacy is in, in ways that are very similar to the ways that we're trying to rethink what policing is right now or what public safety is or what public health is. I think we need to begin thinking about, rather than thinking about privacy in some kind of 19th century way, thinking about anonymity as a kind of public resource. We think about creating places both physically as well as somehow collectively psychological, for lack of a better word, that allow us forms of freedom and allow us forms of experimentation without any real consequences, because we understand that that is necessary in order to create more verdant forms of culture, to be able to articulate and demand different kinds of rights, different forms of representation, different forms of self-representation. And if we don't do that, what our lives are, both literally as well as kind of culturally, will be increasingly and at some point completely dictated by the corporations whose interests are in extracting value from us. Trevor Paglin there talking to me about his new exhibition, Bloom, runs at London's Pace Gallery until the 10th of November. And don't forget, you can check the show out online via Octopus. Head to pacegallery.com for more. I've been Augustin Machelari. This interview was edited by Jack Dewars. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.